Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gabfest for February 22nd, 2018, the Enough Thoughts and Prayers edition. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm in Washington, D.C. John Dickerson of CBS This Morning is back. Hello, John. I'm, I'm very happy to be back. I'm sorry I wasn't with you last week. And John, you are in New York. You're in CBS Studios in New York. Emily, however, is gone. It, did she take the midnight train to Georgia? Is she visiting the Anne of Green Gables house in Prince Edward Island? I don't know. I don't know where Emily is. Maybe she went to Carolina in her mind. I don't know. But it doesn't matter because Annie Lowry of the Atlantic Gabfest veteran. You've been, you've been on a show. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Of course. Annie Lowry of the Atlantic joins us. Hello, Annie, in Washington with me. Hi. It's nice to be here again. I was touched that you went back to the old Slate office where you used to work. Yeah. Because you didn't know that Slate had moved. It was, I knew, some part of my brain knew that Slate had moved and some other more lizard-like part of my brain just was drawn back drew there. Drew back there. <laughs> now we know how Lowry's navigate. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's like three sm- blocks away too. So it was, it was all fine. <laughs> On this week's Gabfest, the students of Parkland, Florida, and then students across the country rise up for gun control. Will they succeed where so many others before them have failed? Then Robert Mueller indicts 13 Russians and three Russian companies for messing with the 2016 election. How damaging was that Russian assault on the election? And what is Donald Trump thinking? Why, why is he responding so oddly to Mueller's latest indictment? Then Mitt Romney is back. We will contemplate the late-in-life Senate run of the on-again, off-again, Trump-bashing former presidential candidate. Uh, I am so excited for Mitt Romney to return to Washington, or to come to Washington. Actually, he's never been to Washington. I'm excited to have him here. He can come stay with me. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter, uh, and we also have a live show coming up. So those of you who live in near St. Louis, within throwing distance of St. Louis, or perhaps they're going to be driving through St. Louis, like Annie will be shortly, you should come to our live show at the Sheldon Concert Hall on May 2nd. You can go to slate.com slash live for details and tickets. St. Louis on May 2nd at the Sheldon Concert Hall, slate.com slash live. The lights are not shining anywhere but there. That's, yeah, it'll be weird. There'll be total blackout. (laughs) That would be awkward. Would we still would we still do the show? No, no. the The lights will only be shining in St. Louis. That's what I'm saying. If there's a blackout yeah. everywhere, everywhere else in the country, else? Oh, would sure. we still do the show? Of course, yeah. Okay, and and we'll dance the hoochie coochie. You'll be my tootsie wootsie. I think we've already done that. We should sing it <laughs> anyway. You like group singing? That might be an option available to us. The Parkland massacre has not come and gone the way mass shootings usually do. A nation that had been inured to school massacres is suddenly paying attention because there is a cadre of passionate, uh, very angry, and very righteous, because they are right, students who are speaking up and demanding gun control. Students from Douglas High School have trekked to Tallahassee to hear, to to watch and bear witness as the Florida legislature rejected an assault weapons ban on Wednesday. Uh, The Florida legislature, however, did declare pornography dangerous to health. You'll be glad to hear, Annie. (laughs) That was that they did manage to pass that law. The Douglas students have also appeared on television repeatedly demanding action from politicians, including in an astonishing CNN town hall on Wednesday night where they harried and grilled their Senator Marco Rubio they are more organizing the March for Our Lives, a Washington, D.C. march on March 24th that is already funded by George Clooney and Oprah Winfrey. There have been and are going to be more local walkouts all over the country. The, the students are so successful. They are also under assault from various kinds of Internet trolls as well as conservatives who, who paint them as professional protesters or as puppets of liberal parents. So, Annie, why... Well, do you think these students are breaking through the debate on gun control in a way that no one has for a long time? I think so. The fact that they're so young, the fact that they're so passionate, the fact that they aren't practiced at talking to legislators, the fact that they're so angry. I I feel like there's still a great piece to be written about how Sandy Hook changed 
D.C. Um, I think it was really a turning point for liberals, but also conservatives. There was this great feeling that nothing, literally nothing, would ever get Congress to act on this issue. If you can go shoot 20 kindergartners and and nothing will happen. And so I think it's been really surprising to see these teenagers come in and really feel like they are shifting the debate and they're not going to stop. And there's now going to be this huge rally and there's going to be tremendous attention on all of these legislators. And I'm not sure that I entirely understand why this has gotten traction in a way that other shootings um, like the one in Las Vegas haven't. But I think it has to do with their very unusual voice and the fact that um, these these kids are, are coming in and are being such unbelievable advocates for themselves and and other, you know, teenagers. John, why do you think they're breaking through? They are a different voice in this. They are the victims because it happened at their school. Um, and they are, they are just in this kind of niche between adults who are written, who are kind of written off in the traditional back and forth grooves of that dead end debate on guns. Um, but not so young that they would be kept off of television. Um, and I think it. I think there is a lot of contributing factors. Part of it has got to be the frustration a lot of people feel more broadly with, with President Trump at this moment. There's obviously the most important thing is the specifics of the case, which are awful. And but but as Annie was saying, is that before the awfulness of the specifics of the case hadn't um, kicked the uh, debate out of its rut. So when we're thinking about what's different here, I think what is different here is that um, uh, in some sense, a president who rushes to fill the emotional void as presidents have in so many previous instances, um, in some ways uh, allows release for everybody who's watching. Um, and there was no release here. There was no um, uh, or that wasn't a part of the story. So that's another thing that's different. And I think also there's a lot of political energy about, um, and this would be outside of, of the specific, you know, Florida, but I think in the country, a desire to push back against the larger president that's maybe a part of this as well. That's a, that's a really good point that the Trump's weak response or, or his inability to show deep empathy and, and sympathy, um, made it possible for this to come forward. I do wonder, though, I mean, the, the Newtown parents, after Sandy Hook shooting, I mean, they, these were parents who had lost their children. Mm -hmm. And right, they spoke up. Compelling. Yeah. They yeah. spoke up and they were tarred. They were, mm -hmm. that that didn't last. Like the, their, uh, them as, as uh, sanctified avatars of this issue didn't last. And do you think that's going to happen with these these children. I mean, that we're already, of course, seeing some of it already where people are saying, oh, they're just, you know, they're professional protesters or it's, you know, this, they're being programmed by their FBI, liberal FBI dad or what, whatever it is. But um, do you think it's, do you think the, the sympathy that they've garnered endures? I think that the fact that it feels like it's transferring into other forms of action and protest matters a lot. So um, there's this rally plan for D.C. There's celebrities that are donating money to it. Um, there are all sorts of actions. There's lie downs. There's walkouts. There's a school district in Texas that told its students that they would be suspended if they did anything. I think that, that was, it was a great move. <laughs> it was almost like it was like a it was almost a setup for liberals. No, exactly. And and it was also, I mean, having been a teenager once gosh nothing would have made me happier right than than to be told not to not to use my first amendment rights and and so i feel like uh there's a way in which this is this is moving to a form of political pressure that's probably really appealing to to motivated young kids. The fact that you're seeing other high school students get behind this and and do the same thing. Students in D.C. have had civil actions. If you go down to the White House, there's been kind of continual protests. You know, I'm not sure that this happened after Las Vegas or after the Orlando shooting or even after Newtown. Um, maybe I'm forgetting something, but I don't remember it moving to this other kind of form of civil disobedience and, mm -hmm. and this other sort of very prevalent form of political pressure. In trying to figure out where, what's new and what's not new, one thing that has struck me is that we saw it both in that CNN town hall and we've seen it in some degree with the president that there was a, a conditioned response to these, which is the NRA response, which is guns don't kill people, people kill people. And so there's the immediate effort and the president was a part of this as well in, in previous massacres where he immediately delinked the question of guns from 
from the issue. Here, when the president first talked and when others talked about mental health, that seemed to be following that similar pattern. But then the president, in response uh, to this, has talked about everything from changing age limits to background checks to... Um, now, those are, are potentially... Uh, they could be meaningful or they could be head fakes. I mean, so in other words, when you talk about background checks, there's everything from the Cornyn bill uh, to what uh, Toomey and Manchin put forward in 2013. That's a big difference. The NRA supports one. The NRA worked very, very hard to kill the other, which they were successful in doing. So, you know, when, when the president says he wants to do something on background checks, there's a huge thing he could possibly do. But the fact that he is at all talking about gun-related measures in response to this seems to me actually is a something that is different. And Marco Rubio, when pressed by a father uh, at the town hall in CNN who said, are guns about this? And Rubio gave a, a, another answer. And then he said, no, answer my question. Are guns a part of this? And when Rubio said yes, then it becomes, okay, what are we going to do? Even that is a shift. Um, the political process is usually what causes those who would like to see reform on any gun legislation. That's what usually crushes their right, hopes. Right. And that's yet to come. So one of the things that I think Marco Rubio hinted at yesterday was a lot of times gun control advocates say it's the NRA or blame put put the blame squarely on the NRA. And I think people on the right say, no, it's not. The, the NRA is powerful because it represents actually a strong body of committed voters. And the problem that gun control advocates have had is that there is not the same level of motivation and commitment and ability to hold politicians accountable uh, for gun control the way there is for gun rights. Is there any chance, Annie, that this, that th this movement be creates a block of actually committed donors and voters who can exercise that same effect on the left that gun rights advocates have had on the right. I think that that's it's it's a really pressing and and open question and when you get to to policy one thing I would note is that everything that people are talking about if you think about sort of a minimalist to a maximalist spectrum, we're still kind of talking about fairly minimalist mm -hmm. measures. Right. The American public, broadly speaking, is very supportive of gun control. Even ninety-seven percent background checks. Support. Yeah, I mean, and and even Republicans, right? But you're right that there isn't a lot of demand for it. It's not people's top issue unless they're um, heavily in support of maximalist Second Amendment rights and minimalist laws. I would expect that what will happen is that Congress will pass something that folks are not sure is actually going to be enough to prevent these in the future. And you've seen in other countries, um, I think it was Australia, where they had one of these incidents and they basically pulled all of the guns back. They said, you know, you have to turn all of these in now. Nobody's talking about that kind of policy here. And so if and when this happens again, uh, when it happens again, It'll be interesting to see what the argument is then, right? Like, well, we passed gun control and it didn't work because there's still these deranged madmen out there. Right. I mean, the, on the assault, I mean, people say, oh, well, you had an assault weapons ban and there were still massacres and right. shootings. But in fact, they dropped a lot. But yeah. there was still enough that people could say, oh, it didn't work. Right. You know, notably, there's not great evidence. The government does not study this as closely as people would like. Even just doing something like that and Be saying we need a lot more data. <laughs> well, because because right. they're not allowed to study. Exactly. Um, they're not allowed to fund research on. Uh, at the moment, in terms of polling, and a lot's going to change, and polling is inaccurate, and let's not put too fine a point on this, but in the polling, which has shown the traditional public support for measures, and, and they blame Congress, and they blame the president, there has not been movement on the question of, of an assault weapons ban. It's still roughly a... Um, a 50, you know, the country's basically evenly split on that. So it has not, um, what it seems like a lot of the kids would like is a full ban. And I'm not sure there's the public support for that just yet. Right. And I, I think it'll be curious if, if we were in a world where Democrats retook the House, I think it'll be curious to see because I would not be surprised if knowing that it was not going to be signed into law, they started passing these fairly, you know, I think it would be interesting to see if they started passing them, bringing them up. And, you know, taking that kind of high ground on that issue and saying we're we're passing the law that would have actually prevented some of these incidents and Republicans are the ones that are blocking it. Do you think that during this next uh, eight, ten months before the election, there's any chance of legislation or is it going to be? I mean, we have, you know, Mitch McConnell. Uh, if there's anything that Mitch McConnell can do, he can slow down legislation. 
if he so chooses. I think that the for for something to get through Congress and get to the president's desk would require an actual concerted endorsement from Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell and the majority of Republicans. Is there any chance that you guys see that that's actually going to happen? I think that they'll pass something, actually. I think that they'll pass something small. They'll make the calculation that it would be better to say we passed a sensible gun control measure and to sort of neutralize that electorally for them. They're facing a very hard election in November. I think that they will do something that will hopefully not completely embitter these Second Amendment voters to them, but they'll be able to say that they did. At least, you know, they passed something. That's my guess. President Trump, who you know, we of course should be cautious about ascribing any intentionality or thought or uh, actual policy to anything that he says or tweets. But his set of statements and tweets about arming teachers, there's no chance that this is going to become part of this, is there? There's no chance. That can't be part of it. Teachers teachers conceal carry in classrooms. That's just an insanely bad idea. There is more support for it than you... uh than you might think. There was a story about a, um, a policeman in Ohio who said he would offer teachers concealed carry classes, and he then put out word that he had to stop enrollment at 300 because he'd already, in just a short period of time, gotten 300 people who had who had asked for that training. Well, first of all, we should note that, it par- that um, in this instance, there was a security guard with a gun. So when the president talked about gun-free schools where nobody can fire back, that was not the case. There was somebody there who could have. He just didn't run into the shooter. So, But also, then you get escalation. You get shooters who will then take, take that into account and, you know, change their tactics accordingly, which, um, which leads to escalation and more potential catastrophic casualties. God, it made me so angry. President Trump has this habit of suggesting these unbelievably radical policy ideas with absolutely no research backing, no consultation with experts, nothing. It's basically a troll, right? It would be possible to to study and to ask, you know, experts on this kind of violence, you know, how many deaths by accident would be caused by this? How many more shootings would there be because some kid pulls the gun off of the teacher? Even just this question of like, do parents have a right not to send their kids into a school where they know that somebody has a gun and might not be appropriately trained with it? What message are you sending to children if their teachers are armed? Like, it's just so infuriating that you would kind of like toss this off. So no, I can't imagine that this is going to become an issue. And also, you know, it's how many people at that concert in Las Vegas mm-hmm. had guns? Right. A lot, right? Yeah. And also, <laughs> yeah. And and uh, it's uh, somebody said teaching is hard enough without having to then have to oh carry gosh. life and death decisions in your, but when, when I interviewed Wayne LaPierre, he said, you know, what all it takes for to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. And that would have been the, you know, a solution in, in Vegas, like, how does this play out? You're in the concert, you, you're carrying a weapon, and somebody starts firing from up in the windows of a hotel. What do you, turn and fire? And if you miss, what happens? You're suddenly shooting into hotel rooms? Like, the the I don't get how the, like, as you quite rightly said, in Las Vegas, uh, everybody being armed would not have settled the situation down. Right. And it's not clear to me that that in any of these school shootings, having teachers have a huge number of guns would have would have done anything. I, I mean, you could almost think about like support for more defensive measures. So some act to say that schools need to make sure that their doors are bulletproof. Right. Like that's still kind of horrifying. But like anyway. So, no, I would be I would be shocked if that became a policy proposal. But, you know, I, I do think that there is going to be this argument for the expansion of concealed carry and for, you know, a general encouragement of people to to protect themselves. You know, the thing that bothers me about it just philosophically, too, is isn't this like, you know, an erosion of the state monopoly on violence, right? I understand that this is supposed to be defensive, but like, don't you have a right to, <laughs> or an expectation that you're not living in a violent society and that you don't have to do this. Well, it's there's this weird conflict, which is that you have also an an arming of the state, so the right. rise of SWAT, this the SWATification of the police, right? Like huge investments in the military, a National Guard armature, and the second, the purpose of the Second Amendment is to protect us against the predations of a militarized state, right? right. Mm-hmm. But yet we're we're excessively militarizing the state. Right. At the same time, we're telling people they, they right. need to have more arms. It's just, and it's even stepping back further, 
the countries in which this doesn't happen, there's way fewer guns, right? Like, like we know that that's, that's one of the well, proximate but this causes. Is, but this is like epistemic closure, right? Is right. That, that you have conservatives, like the con- conservative worldview about this is that people have a right to be armed and the right to make individual decisions that will make, they believe that will make themselves safer. And that's a, a whole worldview. And liberals have mm-hmm. an opposite worldview, which is that there just needs to be a de-escalation and right. this fewer guns. And I mean, yeah. cops in Britain don't carry guns. No, Not- they don't. And what's funny is uh, on the crime shows in Britain, the crimes are always much more horrific because you have to stab people or like hit them with something in order to kill them. You can't just shoot them. Um, all of this is kind of crazy. I was thinking, there was um, when I grew up uh, and I grew up in West Hartford, Connecticut, there was uh, a neighbor of ours and he was a defense, like a criminal defense attorney and he had a gun in his house. And we were never allowed to go in there and play with his kids in the house. They had to come to ours. Like our mom wouldn't Mm. let us go into a house where she knew that there was a gun. And I was thinking, I was like, what would it, would my mom have felt comfortable sending her kids to a school where all the teachers were armed? It's so nutty. It's so crazy. Well, I don't, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I don't think, I think that's excessive on your mother's part. I mean, if you know that the neighbor is gun safety, he keeps it unlocked. I mean, if you if the if the neighbor is careful about it, that right. seems like a perfectly reasonable thing. I would let my kids go to places. I don't check to see whether their friends have guns. She knew how dumb her children were. <laughs> so Slate Plus members get a great deal by being Slate Plus members. That great deal they get is they get extra bonus segments from all of Slate's podcasts. And today's Slate Plus segment is especially good and especially useful to those of you who want to understand the big economic questions of the day. Because Annie, who has a book coming out about universal basic income, is going to explain universal basic income to us. I cannot wait. I've been waiting to get a primer on this uh, so that I can I can understand all the hot policy discussions at the economic salons I'm always invited to. <laughs> and uh, so Annie's going to going to give us a UBI primer. We will talk about her forthcoming book. So you can become a Slate Plus member and get this bonus segment and other bonus segments by going to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. This episode of the GabFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins, and even better with unlimited storage and an easy to use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame. And I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. The Mueller freight train chugs along. This week, he indicted a Dutch lawyer who was linked to Paul Manafort and uh, what, Rick Gates? Rick, Rick Gates. Rick yeah. Gates. But last week was even bigger news. Last week, uh, Mueller indicted 13 Russian individuals and three Russian companies, charging them with various crimes. But those crimes essentially added up to you interfered in our election by using social media and other channels to divide Americans and to promote Donald Trump and undermine Hillary Clinton. The Trump response to this indictment has been strange and troubling. Rather than talking about or worrying about a Russian assault on the American electoral process, he has been tweeting about how we were being laughed at by Russians for for our investigation of it. He's claiming redemption because the latest indictment did not accuse him of collusion. John, it's weird the way he's responding to it. But is it yes, at all surprising given who he is? Well, it well, I mean no, as you quite rightly point out, he is a, he has responded to things consistently with impulse and and without restraint and so you 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 would expect him to 
And in fact, that's been the problem here. He, Steve Bannon said this decision to fire James Comey was the big, you know, the worst possible mistake that President Trump has ever made. And he basically did it based in, in, in Bannon's view uh, and in external views uh, because he couldn't he just couldn't stand it. He couldn't restrain himself and that that's been a, a constant thing here. So the fact that he's keeping it in the news against his self-interest is goes back to that lack of restraint. Um, so. I guess it's not a surprise, uh, but he also has this indomitable will for self-preservation, which should argue for just moving on and doing something else and not keeping everybody focused on Russia. And why why is the focus on Russia so important here is because these these indictments, the 22 who were indicted last Friday and even the new stuff the, that happened this week is um, all validation of the authority of the of the Mueller process process, both in form, how incredibly painstaking and careful Mueller is, but then also in substance that he is talking about here in these indictments about an effort to overthrow or undermine at the very least American democracy. And so you can't call it a witch hunt anymore when it is doing this important work. And so to the extent that that's continually in the news cycle, it undermines the president's larger goal to to claim that Mueller is engaged in a witch hunt. So, Annie, there's a Tom Friedman column in The New York Times that uh, people have been talking about this week, which argues that Trump either actively wants to help Putin or is incredibly stupid or most likely that he is actually effectively being blackmailed, that he himself has some information that he thinks that Russians have on him and that that is why he wants to shut this investigation down. And Friedman posits that it's probably some financial chicanery that he doesn't want to come out. Did, what, did you find that persuasive? I think that uh, there's this Russian nesting doll, if you will, <laughs> of uh, of implications from what Mueller, from what we know of the Mueller investigation, what we know of these indictments. There's like a lot of parts to this, right? So there's Russia interfering in the election. There's the question of the Trump campaign colluding with uh, the Russians in order to help themselves. There's the question of whether that tipped the election to Trump, which I think is not actually an important point, but is, you know, something that they're uh, saying. There's a question of whether the Trump organization knew what they were doing was wrong or illegal. There's a question of Trump's financial problems. There's the question of Jared Kushner's financial problems, which I find very, very interesting. Um, and the truth is that for all that we know about this, there's so much that we don't know, right? It's really actually actually hard to tell what the heck is going on um, because Mueller's keeping things so close to the vest, to the vest and also because Congress has utterly failed to do its investigatory to you know do its job and, and investigate this as well if we had a bunch of congressional commissions that were going after this really hard those would presumably be leaking more and we would have more <laughs> information about this but well, we don't right like well, this is a this is quite the iceberg so like I think that the Friedman you know idea is interesting but like who knows what what the hell is going on there? It's unless you have subpoena power and and all yeah. of these tax returns and all of these emails, all of which we know he has. Um, I, I I think that the unknown unknowns are are so great here, and it's why it's I'm so excited for whenever he wraps this up with his you know like murderer's row of of legal talent that he's assembled. It's astonishing, and I I really you know we're kind of reading tea leaves, right? Well, one of the things about the tea leaves that we're reading is how not only painstaking Mueller is, it just seems like he is operating at a level no congressional committee has ever operated on ever just sure. because he's got such <laughs> such skill. And also in in both the, remember when Manafort was busted for working on that op-ed that was def, that was supposed to support him? And, right. And, and what struck me about that is, man, he, they are listening to everything you do. And that was true in the indictment of this lawyer who lied, the Skadden Arps lawyer who lied. Um, they basically had, you know, his emails and phone phone um, records and like they're watching and they have watched a lot and they've been watching for a while. And so and which I don't think Congress could have gotten that, that maybe even those authorities or managed it the way Mueller did. It just seems like of an operate. It, it seems just so wholly so much more competent and, and also not just competent, but also just skills that, that congressional investigators just don't have. Go, going back to the indictment of the Russian individuals and the Russian entities, I think there's a there's a theological dispute about the nature of the Russian interference. On the one so side, there is 
people saying this is the worst attack on the United States since 9-11. It's an attack on the fundamental integrity of the electoral process. Uh, any honorable president, any president who is fulfilling his duty as in the office would you know, declare this a national emergency and would be convening, hardening all our electoral systems and, and uh, holding constant public meetings about it and, and working as, as much as possible to prevent outside interference. That's one side of it. The other side of it, which was, I think, articulated by Masha Gessen very well, was that basically this was a kind of standard disruptive op of the sort that the Russians and the Soviets have been doing for generations against the United States, now using new technology and new mechanisms, not done particularly well, done done by people whose English was iffy and whose methods were okay. And that fundamentally what was successful is that they just identified fault lines in American life and expose them. But those divisions and fault, they didn't cause those divisions and fault lines. Those divisions exist and they, they multiply, they increase their power slightly. But the fact is that we wanted to believe the things that they were telling us in these, in these uh, trollish false posts. So that rather than panicking about what Russia is doing, we need to panic about our own civic disengagement and, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. uh, our own civic division. Totally. Which of those two vi views do you have, Annie? Or maybe you can hold both of them simultaneously. You can say mm -hmm. it's both a terrible attack and also we're really divided. Right. I mean, I, I think that both of those things are true. And ultimately, I think that the the Russian bots and the Facebook posts and all of this is sort of orthogonal to the, the, the theft and the release of the emails, the potential backscratching between the Trump campaign and the Russian government. The potential financial ties between right. Paul Different, and Manafort, separate from right? the, separate from whatever the, the troll factory. The, <laughs> yeah, the, exactly. The I I actually think that the dumbest possible response to this is the people that have sort of been saying like, well, the U.S. does this too. <laughs> it's like, well, what does that matter at all? So yeah, I th I think that both of those things are true. But again, it's just like sort of one perhaps less important set of issues. Um, but yeah, I mean. It's it's bad. It's bad. It's really, really bad. It says something really bad about Facebook and Twitter that they've let this happen. And then I I, I do. I think that there's this this uh, this way in which we're not taking seriously enough the fact that that there's you know these foreigners who are messing with our elections. It's awful. Uh, even if it didn't have very much of an effect, and even if it was like ham fisted, feels like basically Facebook and Twitter and our whole lives and the attention shredding we allow into our lives and embrace as a culture is basically the IV that was put into our culture. And that, that has to do both with the way we spend our time, but also the way we spend our political time is that we've um, kind of hooked ourselves into this IV of emotional in, um, craziness in a fast news cycle and cable news and social media. And what the Russians did was they just switched out the bag, right? And they just put in their bag of bad stuff, but there's a pretty bad, you know, bag going into the IV already. Um, and I worry that the efforts to change, you know, get Facebook to um, to monitor stuff better and get YouTube to stop allow trending videos that are total hoaxes, that's all good and important. But there is a huge part of this that is us not giving into our worst emotional impulses about anything, whether it's politics or just the way we right. think about other people. And, and I don't want the reckoning that has to take place on that front to, to not take place because people are blaming the Russians or YouTube or whatever. Right, right. No, it's like we, we are, there's already this technology, the, the way that we relate to each other, the kind of divisions in the country already cause so much doubt and dissension and mis misery in people and so much kind of constant anxiety and monitoring of, of perceived wrongs being done to you or perceived wrongs being done to people you support that we're, you know, are, we're incredibly vulnerable to it. And yeah, I think that's very well put, John. I, I, and, and Annie, I think it's good that you're drawing that distinction between the campaign that Mueller is talking about, which is this sort of social media disruption and separating that from the theft of emails and the, the shady business dealings, which are, which are, have a level of corruption and potential for disruption that I think are really profound. I think that there's this, this question of electoral hacking, Mm -hmm. um that again is is 
not exactly what we're talking about when we're talking about these kind of disinformation campaigns. And the hacking is serious. Hacking is serious. Truly terrifying, right? right? right. And could actually really have an effect. And it is. We're we're in an election year. To my knowledge, correct me if I'm wrong, Congress hasn't passed laws to do this, you know, like to, to investigate and to try to prevent this from happening. It hasn't held Twitter and Facebook accountable for their role in this. It's a funny confluence of a bunch of issues, right? right? Everything from this kind of like question of motivated reasoning in a hyper polarized political environment to the way in which we are just emotionally involved with these platforms that are terrible for our brains (laughs) to to, to then this kind of modern day Watergate. Sorry, just to review this, just so I because I want to get this in my own head. Mm-hmm. So as I hear you talking, there there are, I think, four different potential or four different kinds of disruption that that Russia might have practiced in the election. One of which, which is identified primarily in this indictment, is basically using the tools of social media to cause dissension. And right. that's number one. Yeah. Number two is actually hacking election systems, going after voter rolls, yep. messing with things, which we know there was some effort at, but we don't know to what extent yeah, or how much is coming again. Yep. Third is the theft of emails from Podesta, from the DNC, right. and the distribution of those at timely moments to right. cause dismay in the election. Fourth is kind of the actual potential collusion between Russian actors and people in the Trump campaign. And then fifth is whatever sort of shady financial dealings there may be between People connected to Trump and Russians, right? I so think that, I think that and those are all distinct <laughs> yeah. or semi-distinct. And all of those problems. are are semi-distinct, and a lot of you know, and and then there's this question of there's there's multiple actors within, right? Manafort was and is and was, and Rick Gates is and was just enormously corrupt. But what it really they, is amazing? Oh God! And and you know, and the evidence that we have, it is. It's just this fascinating question. You know, it relates to what we were talking about earlier. That there's just so much more to come out about this. Uh, Man, two two things as you potentially close off this topic. One <laughs> is, uh, one is. Um, let me see if I can follow this line of thought. It seems to me that if you are meddlesome Russians, uh, and we should point out that part of what the, the Mueller indictment showed was that the Russians helped meddle on the left as well, and particularly after President Trump was elected, that they started trying to agitate on the left and become part of the resistance. If you are Russians in the effort, wanting to meddle, wouldn't you spend your meddlesome dollars most effectively by essentially ginning up the, the left, allowing them to elect a lot of officials who then, you know, presumably get the, you know, Democrats to try and impeach the president, at the very least, get Democrats elected to gum up the uh, operations of the federal of the of the government. But that that would be this, your, your smart play if you're an ideologically agnostic Russian meddler. So if that's the case, shouldn't Donald Trump have a new reason to really care about this? And that's my one point. The second is that in the reporting The New York Times has done and that The Wall Street Journal did about um, the president's alleged affair with the porn star, what, what The New York Times has done and the and journal has done is sketched out a thorough and extant system for of payoffs and manipulating and managing unpleasant information. Okay, so if you had a system in, in place that was at operating several different times, and if that is the case, then when the Russians were, as we know, trying to break into the or not break into, but find common cause with the Trump campaign, that instinct for doing things around the normal system, I, I can't imagine that it wouldn't have kicked in somehow. Um, and we don't have any evidence of that. But I just think that that we, we one of the things we also learned this last week is just how easily the president and his lawyers and other people kind of had this off-the-book system of dealing with things. I want to close with actually one final point, which is that Russia has essentially felt no consequence for its digital warfare. It has interfered in the business, the internal doings of Estonia. It interfered in Georgia. I suspect it interfered in Ukraine electronically. Uh, it, it is The country is very happy to, to engage in digital guerrilla warfare and has really not been punished in any meaningful way for it. And I wonder if if there is any way to punish them because one of the things about digital warfare is it's very asymmetric. If you are the if you are the lesser power, you know, we could sure we can go and mess with the Russian electoral system, but what good would it do us? It's already a corrupt system or we could, you know, we could mess with uh do denial of service attacks to Russian websites, but 
their denial of service attacks to an American website caused so much more damage than anything we could do to them. So is there anything you can do when someone is engaging in asymmetrical digital warfare against you? Yeah, I mean, I think that we almost kind of forget uh, when you just go back and, and look at what Obama did, expelling the diplomats and and raising the sanctions issue, the United States has tons of levers to pull, right? Like tremendous financial sanctions. The U.S. can really hurt the Russian economy. Um, it, it has huge amounts of diplomatic threats. And and the Trump administration just refuses to, to, to do that. Congress could be doing more as well. And, and there's been a choice not to. And you know, whoever is president after Trump, it's hard for me to imagine that they wouldn't, um, as a policy matter, begin doing that. Will there be a president after Trump, Annie? Please I... tell me there will be. <laughs> Someday. I, we can't continue with this forever. Seven, seven, seven years from now, probably. Exactly. <laughs> there you go. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. The 2018 election got started for real this week. There was early voting in Texas's primaries, the start of a nine-month slog that will only feel like it's nine years long. The biggest news of the week was that Mitt Romney, former presidential candidate, former governor of Massachusetts, businessman, savior of the 2002 Salt Lake City Olympics, will run to succeed Orrin Hatch in the Utah Senate or the American Senate from Utah. Hatch is retiring after serving for 143 years in the Senate. <laughs> Romney accepted Trump's endorsement, uh, despite a mixed history with the president, um, which we can get into. He he uh, sharply, he took, he took Trump's endorsement back in 2012 when Romney was running for president. He sharply criticized Trump during the 2016 campaign. When Trump was elected, he talked to, Trump about becoming a secretary of state, but was thrown over for Rex Tillerson and what was a really cruel, seemed like a really cruel, intentional way by Trump. He's been very critical of President Trump since he took office. But it's fun to contemplate the idea of Mitt Romney in the Senate. I love Mitt Romney. I think Mitt Romney is one of the great public servants in American life, and he almost certainly will be elected. If he is elected, Annie, is he likely to be an opponent of Trumpism, or is he just going to be, you know, your standard issue conservative senator from a Western state? I have to imagine that he is going to take this seriously and he is going to relish holding the Trump White House accountable. That is that is my guess. He is a very pure public servant. Senators are House members are always way less powerful than you imagine and senators are more powerful. There's not that many of them and and uh, they have some pretty cool superpowers. I, I I think that he's going to take this job very seriously. And I think that you have seen this kind of craven way in which uh, Republicans on the Hill have refused to uh, have been excited about passing legislation and therefore have kind of abrogated their their duty to hem in the executive and to, to investigate the White House and to use the tools at their disposal to um, enact change with the Trump administration. And I, I think that Romney just being Romney is going to go and, and be Romney. John, one of the things that I liked reading about uh, as I was reading about Romney's candidacy, was this idea of Utah conservatism, which is basically when people say that they really mean Mormon conservatism, which is pro-trade, pro-export, largely pro-immigrant, mm -hmm. outward-looking, mm -hmm. socially very conservative, uh, but very collegial and pretty good manners. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And it's to me like the, when I think about what is the last hope for rapprochement in American politics, I kind of think that Utah conservatism on the right and maybe, maybe sort of uh, – Virginia, Virginia Democrats on the left, um, that those are the models where there's mm. possibility mm -hmm. that there's hope that they, yeah. there's still some kind of sense that we can work together. There's some sense of collegiality, some sense that, yeah. uh, uh, you know, we're, we're going to manage this. Um, do you share that hope? I like that. Well, I, you know, I, I basically share that hope for mankind, but I like where you have, um, uh, where you, you have, uh, placed it. 
So the question, though, then is how does that really play? How does that really play out and work? Because, you know, in order for the Utah Democrat, Utah Republicans to convince the rest of their colleagues, they have to really convince the the voters that vote for their colleagues and that might primary their colleagues into doing, you know, into not supporting primary candidate against their fellow Republicans. And the reason that's interesting is in this context is that watching Mitt Romney's behavior from now until uh, the convention in Utah will be interesting. You'll remember that um, Mike Lee beat out Senator Bennett of Utah by being the conservative candidate. The The idea being that Washington capitulators had, you know, sold out their conservative roots. So Romney, and this is why I think one of the reasons he's running this like super local Utah campaign, doesn't want it to be a national campaign, doesn't want to be a, a, a at war with Donald Trump, is he wants to get through his party's nominating convention. And then once he does that, then we'll see what, you know, how he changes. But the big challenge for your vision is the, the difficulty with the, the primary system um, that, that holds so many other um, right. of, of Romney's colleagues. And there's a, there's, a less very, there's a less passionate version on the Democratic side. It just isn't, it isn't the same. And the political scientists who've looked at it, you know, the two parties have gotten more ideological, but the Republican Party since 1994 has gotten very much more ideological than, than, the, than the Democratic Party has moved left and has also instituted with, with the whole structure around it um, a group. And you, you know, you can go all the way back to 1992 and Bush's signing, or 1990 and Bush's signing of the of the uh, of the budget, where there is a process in place for extricating from the party the, those who have gone against party orthodoxy and doing so through the primaries. So, Annie, there's one aspect of Romney running that really troubles me, which is that he's a 70 year old running for a seat. He's going to squeeze out. Somebody younger, Evan McMullen, for example. I don't know if Evan right. was thinking of running, but I imagine he was thinking of running. Right? Uh, isn't it a shame to have somebody that old taking a seat? Yeah. I mean, Hatch is already Hatch is you know eighties, probably eighty five or something. Right. For Romney serves two terms. He'll be in his mid eighties by the time he's out of office. Right. Uh, he might be the the healthiest man in America, right? Yeah. Never touched a drop of alcohol, doesn't drink coffee. You know the ma- most amazing statistic I've ever learned? The average Mormon man lives 10 years longer than the average American man. That's amazing. I'm not surprised to hear it, though. They are. They're very clean living folks. Yeah. I mean, and and I think related to that point, uh, <laughs> Congress looks nothing like the United States, Right. Uh, it is not at all even close to demographically representative. It is older. It is more male. It is richer. It is whiter. There's been, at the same time, just a tremendous number of younger candidates and especially women that are signing up to run for office and have been very motivated by the Trump presidency to do so. So it's funny. Romney is actually really out of step with that broader trend, which I think is a really exciting one that's bringing all of these new candidates and getting them to to, to sign up. And so he will he'll come into a Congress that that will be more female, hopefully younger than this current Congress. Utah is an exaggerated example of of what you see in other states. I actually suspect he's just going to Romney himself. He's going to hate it. I don't I contra what you were saying a minute ago, Annie. I think he he's only been an executive in his life. Mm-hmm. He likes being executive. He likes running things. The Senate is pure posturing. It is. And I don't, that's to me is what actually he's worst at, mm-hmm. which is one reason why he wasn't elected president. True. But he's a, he's a technocrat uh, and he's a deeply principled person. And so where he, uh, I think, might be successful, you can imagine him being like a real thorn in Mitch McConnell's side and actually refusing to vote for things unless policy changes are enacted. And that's the thing is Republicans, you know, have generally lined up to vote for bills without. It's interesting, you know, there is that the the Rubio Lee provision to expand the child tax credit mm-hmm. that they didn't actually insist got in that final tax <laughs> legislation, for instance. And I, I, I think it'll be interesting to see how how mavericky he is once he's there. John, can we turn to the overall 2018 picture for Mm -hmm. Democrats? Because there was a – Democrats had been feeling extremely optimistic about what was going on Mm -hmm. until about a month ago. And then about a month ago, I think there was a sense, well, Americans seem to like this tax cut that's gone through and the generic ballot uh, moved back 
slightly mm-hmm. towards Republicans, although still heavily in the Democrats' favor. Uh, you know, in the last week, there's now been a, a retreat in the president's approval rating. I think the generic ballot is looking slightly more Democratic again. What's your sense about about uh, where we are? Well, I, I think it's, you know, super fluid. We're a long way away. I think one thing that is still true, if we look at the one constant in American politics right now, it is that the president is uh, impulsive and um, and and is consistently engaging in behavior that riles up and acts as a turnout mechanism for the Democratic base. And then now we have events doing that as well. So you have, there's the gun question, which will um, potentially turn out younger voters. It also... Um, is a is a very tricky issue for suburban women voters, both Democrats as a motivator, and then for Republicans turning them off. Now you got to go state by state and look at the places that it's going to matter. Um, North Dakota is a different kind of state than Missouri or Indiana in terms of um, you know the size, share, and number of of suburban women voters. So you you got to be really specific in a lot of these these races. The map is still very good for Republicans on the Senate side. You've got a lot of Democrats who are incumbents running in red states that that, uh, President Trump won by big numbers. On the other hand, it's easier to nationalize a race and a Senate race, and nationalizing it for Democrats means basically using the president. And so that's a constant, is the extent to which he's a turnout mechanism for Democrats, and they need it in off-year elections because their voters tend to turn out in smaller numbers uh, than uh, Republicans, or it's harder to turn out Democrats than Republicans. The thing about the tax cut that I wonder about, Republicans, based on the ones I've talked to, think that this is going to be the message both, hey, we delivered on what you wanted with the tax cuts, and don't elect Democrats because they'll mess everything up. I think in the end, that will be the big counterargument to try to get Republicans to turn out, which is, yes, you may not like the president, but you really don't like Nancy Pelosi. They used that successfully in the Georgia uh, special, but I don't know how that all plays out. Can, so can, I kind of, that's what I feel like. Can we actually, Annie, can we dig into the Nancy Pelosi question for a second? Because I I find myself genuinely ambivalent about it. She's clearly a politician of enormous skill. She's She's served very effectively and honorably for 30 years. Whoever is the Democrats leader in the House is going to have a target pinned on on her back, no matter who it is. So obviously, they people talk about the Pelosi, Pelosi's leadership. If it were person Y, they would talk about person Y's leadership. Conservatives would would denigrate it. On the other hand, I do. She's led the Democrats for 12 years. I think in the kind of wisdom versus calcification chart that we all go through, your effectiveness versus calcification, like you know, you can really get good and good and good at a job, and then at some point you become less good because you're sort of calcified, and you're also mm-hmm. you're blocking the way for younger people, right? I think she should get out. She surely is not as effective as somebody who came in and had a great, strong seven years. I mean, this is why the New York Times cycles through its editors every seven years. It's like, <laughs> like get, get some new blood in there. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that both of these things are true. She is an enormously effective legislator. When you go back to that really brief window in which they passed just really remarkable legislation, and I think we sometimes forget that the House also passed cap and trade. You know, she she got that group of people to take some enormously hard votes. They passed the Affordable Care Act. And, so that's And they true. lost their majority. And like, they, they lost the, their majority. They got sure. <laughs> Which was perhaps inevitable. They knew it that that window yes. was, yeah, was yeah. slamming shut. But yeah, it is true also that she has been there so long that you've repeatedly seen this congressional talent, in some cases, even just leaving Congress because they're not going to be able to rise up. You know, I don't think that she's going anywhere. I don't know how much she's going to hurt the party's prospects by remaining there. I do know how much she will relish her role as a speaker in the event that Democrats take back the House. I can't even imagine how happy she is going to be and also how how fast and not saying this would be her, but how fast Donald Trump's tax returns are going to, you know, get leaked (laughs) once that happens. How can they do it? Well, then they'll they'll have subpoena power. They'll, yeah. I'm just guessing that that will happen, and it'll be really exciting. Why didn't New York State ever force his tax returns out? I'm New not York... sure. It's I actually haven't looked because you know there's been um, a number of states that have said that in order to run in the state you have to mm-hmm. release your tax returns. Mm-hmm. I I haven't followed up on what happened with that. More broadly, in terms of the economic message, I think that Republican messaging on this tax bill, which was enormously unpopular when it passed, has actually been really 
pretty excellent. They're going to go to folks and they're going to say, you all got a tax cut this year. Go take a look. The economy is doing better than it ever has been since the 90s or whatever. And I think it's going to be hard for Democrats to counter that message by saying, well, the tax cut was really for, and this is this is completely accurate, the tax cut primarily benefited corporations and rich people. The economy is doing well right now. In the event that there's any softening in it, I think that that's going to be really catastrophic. And I'm not sure that Republicans are going to have a good answer for that. They're sort of relying on this kind of quiet, great economy where people are really starting to get raises to save them some of these kind of controversial seats. So let's go to cocktail chatter. John, when you are uh, sitting on a, in a Manhattan speakeasy, speaking easily, speaking freely, what will you be chattering about to your, your barside neighbor? I will be chattering um, about the the new book, Educated, by Tara Westover, which just came out this week, which I read and we had her on the show. And it's just, it's a, it's a fantastic book about a woman who grows up in the mountains of Idaho. Her father is a survivalist. She was sort of homeschooled, but mostly she worked in the, in her father's junkyard. It's, it's very well done, very well told, and it's the story of her essentially escaping from her family. And what I found most interesting was it's obviously a super highly particular tale um, of a of a person who grows up in a house where you have go bags, which were um, full of supplies and ammunition in case the government came after them the way they did uh, Randy Weaver at Ruby Ridge. And yet the, the crisis she goes through trying to extricate herself through this family, which is a fundamentalist um, Mormon family, um, and the insanity she feels, she basically goes, she has a nervous breakdown. And when she, she goes to BYU and then ultimately goes to Cambridge, the insanity she describes and the, the wagon circling of her family and the group felt like it had a lot of echoes with the other stories we've heard of people who are, um, who have tried to tell their stories about abuse of one form or another uh, and ended up doubting themselves, ended up having to fight through whether it was the U.S. Olympic Committee or Michigan State in the case of Larry Nasser, the, the Olympics doctor, or Hollywood or any of these other areas where, or the media, where where people circle the wagons. Um, that felt like this particular story offered insight into that kind of crisis. Um, anyway, it's just, uh, it's very well done and, um, and, and a good read. Annie, what is your chatter? So my chatter, I love the Olympics so much and have been utterly delighted by the story of Elizabeth Sweeney, who is a member of the Hungarian ski team. She's awful. She's a grifter. She's a grifter. So she got to the Olympics by basically signing up for all of these half-pipe ski events in which she just wouldn't crash. And therefore, you know, she would come in like 11th or something, manages to get to the Olympics on the Hungarian ski team after I believe that previously she had tried to, to get there with Venezuela. Puts in this performance. The Venezuela skeleton. She tried to get a skeleton oh, for skeleton. Venezuela. Wow. Venezuela. She's and she's amazing. Despicable. And so mm-hmm. she she uh, puts out this half pipe performance in which she just kind of like makes like a nice parabola and does absolutely no tricks. And it is so delicious and insane and completely crazy that she just scammed her way into the Olympics. I love it so much. I cannot tell you enough how much I recommend going and watching her run. We'll put a link on the website so that everybody can take in the wonder. And it's it's so much funnier for the fact that she's just careful about it. She's like not crashing. She's not even trying to do any tricks or anything. I cried laughing. <laughs> um, and, and she's, I think, a despicable person, but I'm not really sure. She tried to run for governor of California. Wow. On what? It must have been a single issue platform. She's just, she's just somebody who, who needs to draw attention to herself. <laughs> she was probably in your Harvard class also. She, Harvard she, is the worst. She, uh, <laughs> it is definitely. Annie Lowry, David Plotz, Jared yes. Kushner, and uh, possibly Elizabeth Sweeney. Um, her, it's appalling. I, I have so many thoughts about that, but I'm just going to save them. My chatter. Uh, one of my problems, which is a really small problem, is that I have a hard time falling asleep at night because usually if I want to watch television, television is so exciting. There's always so much... So much drama in anything you want to watch. It's always, you know, it's a great murder. It's like a serial or the who is the bachelor picked this week or whatever it is. And I get 
very agitated. And, and so at the end of the evening, you want to fall asleep and instead you're filled with agita by the, the television you've just been watching. I have found a solution to that, fortunately, which is that uh, I just happened on Planet Earth 2. Uh, oh, yeah. Which I, I never saw Planet Earth 1, which I'm sure is also good. But Planet Earth 2 is the series narrated by David Attenborough about um, the creatures of the Earth. And it's divided up into geographical areas. There's one about islands. There's one about deserts. There's one about grasslands. It is. It will calm the mind and soothe the spirit. You can watch the that spider monkey. Is that spider monkey? That little spider monkey. Is it going to fall out of the tree, or is it going to you know be rescued by its spider monkey dad? Is that snow leopard mom? That snow leopard mom and and her snow leopard child, her snow leopard daughter. Are they going to you know have a family reunion one day or not? What's going to happen? Uh, it's just incredible. It's beautiful. I mean, there are problems with it. It doesn't kind of contemplate climate change. It doesn't contemplate the human effect on on these animals' lives. Um, and and it, I think it probably invents narratives. It invents stories that probably aren't naturally there. Um, but it is it's just gorgeous and incredibly relaxing. So watch yeah, Planet Earth too, and good and suitable for family viewing, which is not always you know. I mean, it's good to gather the family around. That is a good thought. That is our show for today. The Political Gap Fest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Izzy Rowe. Jocelyn just gave herself a high five. That was nice. You can fo- follow us on Twitter at Slate Gap Fest. Did you? She did just give herself a high five. Now she gave herself another one. Follow us on Twitter at, at Slate Gap Fest. For John Dickerson and The Atlantic's Annie Lowry. Annie, thank you so much. Please come back yeah. anytime. I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening and come to our St. Louis show on May 2nd, slate.com slash live for tickets.